Thank you for joining us uh, this morning in, in corporate worship. Uh, every quarter uh, of the year, we like to take uh, one Sunday at where we particularly highlight uh, the global missions aspect of our church life together. So today is that day. We did this back in February. We have the opportunity again uh, today. So I'm going to uh, welcome Ben, who is our global missions director here at our church, and he is so incredible and organized and so much. Can we give him a hand? Yeah, absolutely. He, he detests that with all of his heart, so that makes it really fun for me to ask you to clap. That's great. Um, so he's going to share where we are as a church globally. So, so listen in now as, as you hear this update and report. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. That's from Matthew 4.18. And good morning. As Josh said, my name's Ben. And uh, I'd like you to be invited to come fishing with us. Uh, and specifically uh, with the J1 ministry. And some of you may have heard about that uh, last summer. Several of us spent time getting to know college students from around the world with intent of loving them. And then we wanted them to understand the reason for that love came from Jesus. So we spent about three months with them, dinner, uh, either at their place, at ours, going back and forth. Uh, we did have one come to Christ. Uh, she went back to Thailand, got plugged in with the church there, and she had other opportunities, but she felt like uh, God called her back here. And she's on her way back from Atlanta right now with uh, Dylan Call, and she'll, she'll get in tonight. Um, so that was last summer, and last week we started again. Uh, we had a group go out uh, to Hunter's Road, uh, where there's about 400 of these J1 students, they're college students that come here uh, for just this summer. And we have the opportunity just to, to get to know them. And we're going to intend to lean into them and to uh, show them that uh, we care about them and that we love them. Um, they don't always have the best conditions, both with work and with school and then uh, with their jobs here. Uh, and then we want to point to Jesus through all that. Uh, they come here to make money, and we think that God has a, a bigger plan for them and that he's going to uh, do good things, great things, uh, with this church and with this ministry this summer. It's really where the Great Commission meets the Great Commandment in Santa Rosa Beach, to love your neighbor as yourself. And God has really opened a door for us. So um, what I'm asking for is uh, a couple things. First is everyone in this room uh, to participate in, in what, we're kind of, what we're calling a J1 challenge. Uh, so this week, you will encounter a J1 student. They're everywhere. They're checking out your groceries. They're in the parking lot. They're... Um, maybe coming off the east side of you. And then just for the whole church, I'd really like everybody to get to know, that, just introduce yourself, get their name, and then pray for them. Uh, on your own, pray for them and see what God does and ask him uh, to lead you in that. Uh, and, then, and those who would like to get, we have about 25 that are interested, and I really want to open this up to the whole church. Uh, but the ushers have a, a sign-up sheet, if the gentleman could pass that out. Um, we'd like to have more get involved with this. Uh, and what you'd be looking at doing is just once a week meeting with them um, for uh, a meal, uh, joining us as we shoulder to shoulder pursue these students. Um, what else is on this is OMS coming back down here. Uh, and we really want to be faithful to that. So I'm asking for people to sign up just to host a dinner. Uh, we'll organize it. We'll, we'll get it. But just for your commitment to sometime this summer when she comes down here, when she returns to a, a church that uh, God used to bring her to Christ, that we continue to pour that love back to her and just host her for a dinner. 
it, it can be casual. Um, we, can, we can do that together. But I'm asking for that as well. Uh, and you can see that in your sign-up sheets. Um, and then we also have another missionary from uh, China coming this way. Uh, she's uh, a national Chinese member. Uh, she is from China, but she has a heart for a people group called the Nosu. We have about a dozen members in the church who write Nosu students uh, and really get to know them over four or five years. Uh, but she translates those letters for those students, and she's actually coming here for three weeks. Uh, so we'd also like to welcome her. Um, she'll be here the 3rd to the 24th of July, um, and we'll have three opportunities to get to know her, to hear her testimony, to hear what life is like being a Christian in China, uh, and what she's seen God do through this church and what other churches in America uh, to bring the Nosu people uh, to Christ. And so I'm also asking for uh, sign-ups on that as the sheets make their way around. And then um, lastly, I just really want us to lean into not neglecting those that God has given us. Um, and these are two really good examples in addition to the, the, the J1 students. And this really opens up for a bigger question. Why, why do missions at all? And I, I think it's important to know why you do something before you do it. And uh, something that stood out to me, it always does, is, is John Piper. And he had some good words on this. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, uh, missions will be no more. So really, the, the goal of missions is, is nothing less than the worship of God. It's both the, uh, the destination and the fuel of missions, and the local church is, is the engine that makes it happen. And this church, I know, is a piece of that. Uh, in case you, thanks for the amen. If you hadn't noticed, there's a m amazing people in this church. Uh, God, has, God has placed a lot of, lot of them here. It's, it's stacked, as we would say. But um, from what I've experienced in the military and with special forces, uh, there's something to be said for doing difficult things with a great team on a common purpose. And uh, deeper joy comes when that is for uh, God and for bringing glory to him. And I've seen that in this church. And I'd really help you guys, uh, really help me by leaning into that this summer, uh, just with your time and uh, with uh, the limited resources that you have. It, it's, it's deeply appreciated. Um, I also just wanted to say one other thing here with uh, Sendwell. Thank you for those who came out last night. If we get a round of su support for that or clap for that. Uh, <coughs> Lauren had a really good thing. For those of you who don't know, she's got um, some pamphlets out, out here to talk more about her, her nonprofit, and that was a really good thing. Thank you for turning out the last night. And uh, really quick, I'd like to turn it over to Adam, uh, who will be uh, talking a little bit about his trip to India that he took several months ago and what that was like uh, for the, the people that went. Hey, good morning. Um, one thing that he said that I, we are blessed. I love so many of you guys. I don't know a lot of you now, but uh, I can't tell you how amazing it is to walk alongside uh, brothers and sisters like you. Um, being more specific to that, one of the people or peoples that have made a good difference in, in my life over the past few years, uh, Jake and Hannah Vermillion. Uh, it's been really nice to get to know them. Um, through them, my wife and I have uh, really developed a heart for the Indian people, the country of India, have learned a lot of the tragedies that go on there, 
Uh, and thanks to Jake, he organized a trip back uh, end of January. We were able to go to travel to South India, where we visited uh, the India Rural Evangelical Fellowship, or IRF. Um, so a little bit about IRF. They're an amazing organization that I guess their mainstay uh, is to educate, house, feed, and teach kids the gospel. Uh, so they do this with thousands of kids each year. Uh, they have our equivalent pretty much of elementary through high school. They also have a college. They have a college of nursing. Uh, they specifically reach out to people that would otherwise have no chance of education, are destined to be in poverty their whole life. Uh, these people pretty much have no hope unless someone reaches in and pulls them out, and that's where IRF steps in and has been doing this for years. Uh, they extend past that to many other things. One of the things that they also do uh, they planted churches in over 100 villages uh, in South India. Then they work to train, support, uh, and send local Indians to those villages to pastor those churches. So they're literally reaching people that would otherwise have no access to the gospel. Um, when Ben asked me to share, he asked me to share something of, of how I saw God move. And I think there are many, many ways, hundreds of ways I could say how God moved. But I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was the sacrifice of the people from IRF, uh, the things they give up for this world to see the glory of God uh, come to people that would otherwise not have it. Uh, you can look at the Rebbe's, D and Emmanuel Rebbe lead IRF. Uh, they're in their 60s. D was educated in America. They both could be living here, the typical American dream, retired, working on their golf swing, whatever else they wanted to do. Instead, they're in less than ideal conditions. They're working um, many, many, many hours a day. I think one day when we were there, they worked from like 7 in the morning till 2 or 3 at night, and they do this repetitively, um, all for one reason, that their people, the Indian people, may come to know Christ. Uh, that's absolutely amazing to me. Uh, the other that stood out was Pastor Sudakar, who's a local Indian. He uh, moved his wife and his daughter to a low-caste village. Uh, so he moved to a place of poverty. There's no uh, usable water for seven miles, um, basically to be their pastor, to pastor this small village. We visited his church there, which is a dirt floor with a roof over it and no walls. Um, but he moved there because he wanted to see these people come to know Christ, and these people being people that the rest of the world considers worthless. Uh, so you see that, and you have to ask your question, or I ask myself this question, what am I living for? You know, when you see people really forsaking things that the world says is, are great to go to places that the world says are terrible, for people that the world says they're worthless, I mean, it really kind of hit home for me of what are we doing here? Um, there are many of unreached people groups in India, as, as you probably know. Uh, one of the best ways, I think, to have these people reached are from their indigenous people or the fellow Indians. So if you would like to, and I didn't ask if I could do this, but I'm going to. Uh, if you would like to uh, s support financially, uh, IRF, you can talk to myself, you can talk to Jake or Hannah Vermillion. They also have monthly sponsorships for kids for their education, housing, and clothing. Uh, this, as many of you may know, that Compassion International has pulled out of India, uh, which was one huge group that was doing that. Uh, and I would say most importantly, to just pray for IRF. They make a huge impact for the gospel. God's used them in a mighty way. But the government oppression uh, to the gospel is really increasing in India and will probably increase. Uh, and it may make it somewhat dis difficult for us as American Christians to even go there in the future. 
So if you would pray for them, I think that would be uh, above all the importance. So thanks for letting me share. If you have any questions, you have a heart for India, then please let me know. And thank you. Actually, you stay up here for a sec. He doesn't know I'm about to do this, but Amy, if you could come up here too really quick. Um, so they're, they're leaving in uh, two days to go back to India to adopt a little girl. And uh, if Josh, if you come up here, I just want to pray for him real quick as a, as a church to let them know that we're behind us. And I would ask for you to continue to do the same uh, as they travel and lean into it. Um, Father God, we love you so much. Uh, thank you for this, this family. Thank you for Adam, Amy, and Ollie and what you've called them to. There's a little girl on the other side of the world who, uh, who doesn't know what's about to happen, but you do, Lord. And I just pray for your, your sovereignty over their travel, over the, the sleepless nights, over the stuck in airports. Hopefully none of this happens, but Lord, you'll be with them through it. And uh, I thank you for their heart, Lord. And uh, I, I pray for, for your sovereign hand over their over their. Their, their trial to bring uh, someone to you, to know you, Lord. I pray that she grows to know you, Lord, in their home. Be with them for the next few weeks. Let the church be with them. And let them know that they're loved and supported, and we thank you for them, Lord. In your son's name, amen. Last little bit we'll touch on here is uh, Josh will share a little bit about Turkey. But I'll just say as these uh, sheets make their way around, I'd really encourage you just to lean into them. If God in the corner of your heart is saying, maybe I should do that, please put your name down on that seat, and we'll, uh, we'll talk more about it. Or you can find me. I'll be out here afterward. But I'm going to turn it back over to Josh. So you, you down with that? Cool. Well, uh, what feeds all of this and what Ben shared is that worship itself is the fuel for mission. So let's, let's continue in worship. Let's continue in the word. And let's be fed this morning. So I want to pray again, if that's all right, to transition us and pivot our hearts toward the Word of God. Because none of this exists without the great gospel that we believe. So let's pray to that end. Father, feed us. We come here today with souls needing food. And you've already given us a, a, a small taste through this missions moment, through this missions update. And now we pray that you would bring that to its full, that you would fulfill the need, the desperate need in our hearts to hear from you. So Lord, open up your word into our hearts. Pry us open and speak. Your word is exciting. I cannot wait to dig into this text. Thank you for the gift of the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, let's turn to 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16 is the ninth book in the Bible, so you're going to be kind of in the front end of your Bible. If you don't have one, there's one close by you. Go ahead and grab that. 1 Samuel 16. God is radically God-centered. God is radically God-centered. To God's glory, His fame, 
that is his, his supremacy, his might is his greatest and most passionate pursuit. When we ask the question, what is God up to? What is he doing in the world? What is God doing in my life? What is God doing with my child? What is God doing with my cancer? What is God doing with my job? What is God doing in my singleness or my marriage? What is God doing with the deepest of, the pain, of my pains in this life? The answer is that he is claiming for himself glory. If there is one thing to tell you, and this is the very mission of our church, and David shared this back in January, you exist for the glory of God. You exist for the glory of God. God made you and he made me as testimonies of his greatness. God is radically God-centered. Now that presents quite a problem. Because while God is radically God-centered, I am by nature radically self-centered. Right? Though I exist for God's glory... My heart, Steve Smith, I'm so thankful for him, he shared this exact thing from John 5. My heart is constantly vying for my own glory. In fact, much of the stress of my life currently is rooted in one simple but terrifying reality. I love myself too much. It is a disease that is greater than cancer and it is a crime more dangerous than murder. It is self-worship. And so we find ourselves with two glaring realities. God is radically God-centered, and humanity is, well, radically humanity-centered. Now here's why this matters. Here's why I get excited. Because this tension that we're talking about, these polar opposites, it is the story of the Bible. See, the Bible is the greatest book on the planet because it uniquely reveals God's plan to miraculously save us from this self-centered disease and to God-centered worship. You want to know what the point of the Bible is? It's that. To reveal God's plan to fix us in our self-centered disease and to restore us to God-centered worship. Today, in the story, in this story from the kings, we find ourselves in this great plan. And let me show you what I mean. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided, or I have seen, for myself a king among his sons. Now let's stop there just for context. Let's see where we are in the story. This man Saul that, that God speaks to Samuel about, he has rapidly become king. You remember that from last week? He's tall. He's handsome. He, he fits the bill for a king. But remember the context. Remember what's surrounding the person of Saul. Saul's rise to power is rooted in Israel's rejection of God himself as their king. So let me point us back to where we started. Israel's hearts are not God-centered at all. They have that self-centered, self-idolizing disease. And so what do they want? 
They want a puppet king who will feed their idolatry. And that's what they get in King Saul. But as David shared last week, Saul falls, and he falls hard. And we see through the rest of 1 Samuel, by the way, he unravels, psychologically explodes. His impatience, his, his pride, and his disobedience, we learned, backfire on the people. Therefore, God rejects him. Now we read what's going to happen next. See, so Saul is rejected by God. We read what's going to happen next. We have a slide for this. So Samuel says this to Saul. This has got to be horrifying to hear. But we see this in 1 Samuel 13. It says, Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue. Listen to this. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. So this is crucial for us because these words in 1 Samuel 13 set the stage for us today in 1 Samuel 16. Because right as Saul is rejected, what do we learn? Another man is sought by God and chosen. God already has, or I would like to argue has always had, another king in his sights. And he's in Bethlehem. Think about that. A king in Bethlehem. Whispers of Christ everywhere in the story. So here we are, two, two important things to know. Number one, he is one of Jesse's sons. Whoever this next king who is going to be after God's own heart, he's going to be one of Jesse's sons, and he's going to be a man after God's own heart, number two. Okay, so let's continue. Verse two. And Samuel said, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Okay, so Samuel walks into Bethlehem. And the leaders of the city are scared out of their minds. Why? Why, did they, why are they trembling? Well, because when Samuel the prophet comes around, you're thinking, we've messed up. We've messed up. He's not on his normal circuit. Why is he in Bethlehem? He's come for judgment. But, but no, we see he's come there for different reasons, for something that they don't even know about. He's come for something much bigger. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to be a part of Jesse's family that day. Samuel the Great comes to your hometown, he consecrates you, or he, he cleans you up for worship, and he tells you, hey, uh, by the way, uh, one of your sons is going to be Israel's next king. That would blow your face off. It would shock you. Standing right there in front of him is Israel's next king. Or so we think. Samuel calls Jesse to gather his sons together, and I feel like this is like the ancient version of like male runway models, right? Because here we go, one by one, here are the sons of Jesse. And, and the first one here is Eliab. And oh, buddy, you should see Eliab. He's about six foot three, 200 pounds of pure muscle, good smile, 
beautiful dark hair. He has oak trees for thighs and two 12 gauges for biceps. Every time he turns the corner, it's like kapow. He's the talk of the town, and he's an up-and-coming leader. So what does Samuel do? He looks like Saul. He must be the next king. And so he gets his horn, and that horn is for anointing. That is to appoint, easy way to remember what anointing is. It's a little bit oversimplification, but to anoint is to appoint. Right? So he's appointing the next king. He's setting up, he's putting in place the next king. And so Samuel thinks Eliab's the guy. Here he is. But suddenly, the Lord sends shockwaves into this story. And so often the Bible gives us these types of verses that connect us to the grand scheme of things, and they stand out so powerfully. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, talking about Eliab, right? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Okay, so there's that heart language again. The Lord is looking on the heart. It connects us back to 1 Samuel 13. God is seeking a man after his own heart. That's what we were promised in chapter 13. And now in chapter 16, we see God does not see outward appearance. He sees the heart. So let's pause. Let's time out for a second and ask this question. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It's an important question. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart. Because there is something right here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, that God is trying to show us. There are several ways to answer this question, but let me just offer two options. Okay, so the, the question we're asking, this is in your notes, what does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? And the first answer, I believe, a person after God's own heart is someone who does right in God's eyes. A person after God's own heart is someone who does right in God's own eyes. Now, let me show you what I mean. Here's another slide for you. First Kings chapter 14. God is actually speaking to an evil king. He's horrible. His name is Jeroboam. He's a bad guy, a real bad guy. And God is slaying into, he is crushing Jeroboam for his evil. But the way that he does it is by comparing a character we're about to meet, King David. Right? Okay, so here's what he says about David himself. 1 Kings 14, 8. My servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his what? His heart. There's that heart language. Doing only that which was right in my eyes. God speaking. So there's King David. Again, we're about to meet him. He is a man who pursued what is right in God's eyes. His standard for living was God's righteousness itself. This is what it means when God says he wants a man after his own heart. He wants somebody who's going to do right in his eyes. That's the first part, okay? But that's not enough. It can't be enough. Let's also look at Psalm 16. This is now King David writing. Beautiful, beautiful language. The Lord is my portion and my cup. Now, what's a portion? It's your meal. It's your feast. It's what fills you. The Lord is my portion and my cup. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 
So what is this psalm saying? What is King David saying? That it's not only about doing the right thing. There's something that has to go underneath that. And what is it? It's joy. It's satisfaction. A person after God's own heart is someone whose deepest delight is in God himself. That's number two. What does it mean to be a person after God's own heart? It's to be someone who delights in God. Someone who delights in God. God is looking for a king, and I would argue he's looking at you and me, looking for a king that, who will not look anywhere else for joy. God is looking for a king who will not be satisfied anywhere else. And he's not only looking, this story is about God sovereignly choosing a king like this. God is choosing, and I would argue creating, a king who will be entirely wrapped up in the greatness of God. So let me summarize it. To be after God's own heart equals to be radically God-centered. To be someone here in this room who is after the heart of God means that you are in every way and in every sphere radically God-centered. The heartbeat of God before anything else, the very center, the very core of who God is and what He's about is Himself. It has to be. It has to be. Therefore, a person after God's own heart is to have a heart all about God. God is looking for a king that will be like Him. God is radically God-centered. Therefore, He's looking for a man, and in our case, men and women, who will carry on this plan to restore humanity back to God-centered, God-glorifying, God-abiding life. But look, at the unorthodox approach that God takes to accomplish his mission. Verse 8. Then Jesse, so Eliab's gone. He's been rejected. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, the smallest, but, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, sin, sin and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and he went to Ramah. So there he is. So you've got to remember in the Old Testament scriptures and the, the way that they were first formed, the book of Ruth wasn't there yet. So this is literally the first time the name David has shown up in the Bible. Really exciting. Really fresh. Really new. Someone new is on the scene in the Bible. And it's David, the son of Jesse. Much like Jacob, much like Joseph, much like Moses and other Old Testament characters, David is not the firstborn. He's not the strongest. He's not the tallest. He's the youngest. He's the smallest. He's the shortest. And you know what this author is trying to say? This is fun. He's the cutest. He's got 
red hair, rosy cheeks, and beautiful eyes. I mean, come on, if you're trying to show another man your manliness, the last thing that you're going to say is, what up, bro? I got beautiful eyes. <laughs> you're not going to do that. He'll pummel you. Right? That's not the way this works. Samuel, or excuse me, David is a, a boy. He is so unlikely to be king that when Samuel asked Jesse to gather all of his sons, Jesse doesn't even count David in the mix. David was this outsider. He's the eighth son. You know Hebrew numbers? Seven is perfection. He's the eighth. He's outside the boundary. He doesn't even count. He doesn't even count in there. Jesse doesn't even put David in his brain when it comes to thinking who might be the next king. He's the outsider, the sheep boy. On the surface, according to outward appearance, David is the furthest from being king. But listen. But according to the God who looks at the heart, according to the God who wants a God-centered heart, David is the man for the job. Now think about where we are. Think about where we are in this incredible and fast story of the kings thus far. God has rejected Saul. That is Israel's choice for king. And he's chosen his own king, this, this boy, David. So Samuel has anointed David after, uh, as the king after God's own heart. But wait, 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 wait. We can, we can go really fast and we can skip something essential to the plot of the entire story. Why? Why, 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 why? Why does God even want a king after his own heart? And this is where we jump off these pages and into the hearts in this room. Here's the answer. It's in your notes. God wants a king after his own heart because he wants a people after his own heart. Don't miss this. This is, this is critical for what we're thinking about, what we're learning. God wants a king after his own heart because he wants a people after his own heart. One of the primary functions of a king in Israel is reflection. Reflection. The point of a king is to be like that king. God intends for this king to be someone worth imitating. Now, the same thing goes for me as a parent, right, as a dad. One of my roles as a parent is to showcase a life worth imitating, to live the kind of life that I want my kids to, to live. And I see this all the time with my kids. They imitate the good, but what's also true? They imitate the ugly real fast. I see Jack raise his voice. What's my fleshly uh, mode of action? Get louder. So what does he learn to do? Get louder. He imitates me. That's the kind of influence I have on him. Dangerous, important, essential for now. I know that oh, you guys tell me when they turn 13, they don't give a rip. I'm not looking for that uh, yet, but uh, for now, that's the kind of influence I have. And the same goes with this king that God has appointed. King David is going to be God's image for the people. David is a picture. He's a slight taste of what God desires for his people. David is Israel's royal reminder to throw off their self-centered idolatry and to live a God-centered life. And so for now, God is pushing his plan forward through David, the plan to restore the world to a God-centered God-glorifying, God-enjoying reality is seen right here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And in that way, David is a foretaste. He is an appetizer. He points to something. But if we stop 
with David. We're in trouble. You see, this is so much of what it means to study the Old Testament. This is what we're doing in our missional communities. We have to figure out what is the purpose of the Old Testament. See, one of the things that the Old Testament does in an inspired, perfect way is it reveals our desperate need as humans. It shows us where we are, but it does not fully reveal the solution. What does it do? It promises that solution. So King David may indeed be a man after God's own heart, but he has, listen, King David has no power over the condition of my heart. He can't fix me. David cannot produce radically God-centered people. He can't change us. He can't, David, this boy in 1 Samuel 16, however awesome he may be, cannot change you. He can't change the people of Israel. Their hearts are dead. Their affections are corrupted. Their human nature is beyond repair. They need someone stronger. They need someone better. You know what they need? They need a heart maker. That's what the people of Israel need. So then, that's why King David isn't the end of this story. That's why King David is but a stepping stone. King David is a shadow, and my favorite way to think of him is he is a promise of a greater king to come. He points forward to the chief shepherd, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, King Jesus himself. Because in the very line of King David comes the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. And he is, listen, he is forever the most radically God-centered king that there ever has been or ever will be. How? How can I say that? How can I say that about Jesus? Because he's God. This is the linchpin of Christianity. You lose the divinity of Christ, you lose everything else too. He is God. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Therefore, if we truly want a God-glorifying king, then God himself is going to have to come down and do it for us. And that's exactly what he did. At the perfect time, God sent his own son. God sent Jesus Christ, to be the ultimate king for us, to truly know what it means to be a man or woman after God's own heart. To be like Jesus is to be God-centered. To be like Jesus is to be God-glorifying. To be like Jesus is the exact way we're supposed to live. But oh, what a condemning problem we then have. Because to be like Jesus is hopelessly impossible. And this is, listen, this is why the social gospel of the 21st century is toxic. It is a disease as well, because what the social gospel will say is, live like Jesus. You can do it. No, you can't. I'm cautious when people say, be Jesus. I can't be. I will never say that I am Jesus. I can't be Jesus. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the, the substance within me to be Jesus, left to my own human nature, I'm nothing like Jesus at all. I'm like the people of Israel. In my sin, I have rejected God. Our heart condition is one of absolute death. That's what the Bible calls in Ezekiel a heart of stone. But this is what separates King Jesus from King David. This is what makes this bad news such great news. For Jesus did not only live to give us an example he did something much greater than that. He died. He died for us. He died for my heart of stone. He died for your heart of stone. 
When he was crucified, he snatched our dead hearts from us. This is incredible. You want to know what 1 Samuel 16, 7 about? It's about the condition of your heart. And the condition of my heart without Christ is absolute death and stone. You knock on it, there's nothing there. But Jesus Christ dies and he takes my heart of stone with him into the grave. And he takes that, that, takes that dead heart in the grave and he crushes it. He beats it down. There's nothing left there at all. And he rises again three days later with our new hearts, remade hearts, born again hearts, hearts of flesh. It's the incredible gospel. He has replaced our heart of stone with the heart of the spirit. He looks at my sin and death, and he gives me his righteousness. So again, we ask the question, what does it mean to be a man or woman after God's own heart? Two answers, righteousness before God and delight in God. What just happened? Jesus Christ took my place. He gave me his righteousness. Jesus Christ, John 15, puts his joy inside of me. All of a sudden, because of what Christ has done, I can be a man after God's own heart. What relief comes in the gospel? What relief comes there? And so let me say this. this uh, if using the language of 1 Samuel 16, this is what I would say the gospel is. And this, again, not completely, but just listen to this statement. God places in us the very heart he demands from us. Oh, what a relief. That makes me sit down and smile. It makes me feel so safe and secure in the grace of God. That God places in me the very heart he demands from me. God is looking for men and women after his own heart. And so what has he done? He has sent his own son in our place to give us the very heart we need. So we then can be, listen to me, I'm bringing it full circle. We can be against all odds, radically God-centered people. Oh my goodness, we can actually do what we've been created to do. We can be God-centered people. Flawed, of course. Selfish, of course. But we can be, in the power of the Spirit, God-centered people. Power in Christ, heart renewed by the Spirit to glorify God in every sphere of life. That is why God is doing what He's doing in your life. That is why He's currently drilling into your life right now. Why did God give you that job opportunity? Because He wants you to be a God-centered disciple in the workplace. Why is God allowing your daughter to rebel? Because he wants to make you a God-centered parent. Why did God allow for your cancer? Because he wants you to be God-centered through your cancer. Why are you single? Because God wants you to be a God-centered, God-glorifying single man or woman. Why did God give you that spouse? Because he plans to radically shape you into becoming a God-exalting husband or wife. In Christ, we can blast the God of the universe to the people we walk next to every single day. You're an evangelist. You've been bought by Christ to be made so that he might be the center of your life so that you can show the world why they breathe. It is for the glory of God and nothing else. So that's why Ronnie and Chris Jane go play basketball a couple nights ago with J1 students that they met two days before. They want to see God glorified as they lose. You probably won, I don't know. Uh, but that is what, listen to me, and I know I'm taking an overarching bird's eye view, but that's what 1 Samuel 16 is about. That's what the Bible is about. It's about making you God-centered again. That's who we are. And so who is Jesus Christ in the mix of all this? What is his 
his part to play, the part to play, it's this. Big idea, main point. Jesus Christ is the great king who gives us new hearts for God-centered living. You want to know who Jesus is? He is the Lord of the universe who gives you new hearts for God-centered living. And so the main question for Christians, the main question for Christians today is simple. Are there areas in my life that are inconsistent? What do I mean? If I have a new heart of the Spirit, remade by the Spirit, where am I still living for myself? Where is outward appearance dominating new heart life? And the, the way that the question was posited to me that put me on my bum was where is self-worship mocking the glory of God in your life? Where is self-worship mocking the glory of God in your life? Because whatever the answer is to that question is where God wants you to be this week. He's pleading for uh, repentance so that we can be a church of God-centered people. My prayer for us is that we rest deeply and that we drink fully in the reality. Remember what, he, what David said? He is my portion and he is my cup. We'll be filled up with this statement. Jesus Christ is the great king who gives us new hearts for God-centered living. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray that I've been faithful to it. Please change us. Please continue to change us. Make us faithful. Make us God glorifying God, enjoying God, exalting God, dominated God, abiding God, remaining God, praying people. If you are the point of everything, take over our lives. Show us where those inconsistencies are, Lord. Show me where I still love myself too much, so much, that I am no longer God-centered in my life. Correct me as a father would a son. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He is the anthem. He is the joy. He is the heartbeat of this group of people right here. We thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Without him, without this great king in the line of David, how would we come to you? How would we access you? How would, could we possibly enjoy you? Thank you for the power and the promise of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.